You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to PTCE's Pharmacy Connect, a podcast focused on continuing education created by pharmacists for pharmacists. PTCE is the leader in pharmacy and managed care education. In these episodes, listeners will be presented with the most recent clinical updates and strategies for implementing into practice. Today's podcast is about oral oncolytics and how they have become an important part to the treatment paradigm for B-cell malignancies such as chronic lymphocytic leukemia and mantle cell lymphoma, with BTK being central in treatment guidelines. Pharmacists have a critical role in proactively managing these patients to optimize adherence and mitigate adverse effects. Now let's discuss the foundations of evidence for the use of BTK inhibitors in B-cell malignancies and management strategies for cardiac and bleeding adverse effects. Here's our host and founder of the Pharmacy Podcast Network, Todd Urey. B-cell malignancies and BTK inhibitors is the subject of today's discussion. We really get to dig down into the pharmacist's perspective of treatment in specialty disease states. I am really excited to welcome Dr. Anthony Parasinati, brought to us by PTCE, Pharmacy Times Continuing Education Division, as our sponsor today. Welcome, Dr. Anthony. How are you today? I'm doing well, Todd. Thanks very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I read... A little of your background, very interesting, a depth, understanding, and knowledge of hematology, and your relationship with the University of Michigan School of Pharmacy as an adjunct clinical professor. B-cell malignancies and BTK inhibitors, we have really enjoyed the insight that you've prefaced for today's discussion. So Dr. Anthony, set the stage for today's conversation regarding B-cell malignancies and the complexity. Yeah, I think you hit it right on the nose there. There's a lot of B-cell malignancies. Um, primarily today, we'll talk about chronic lymphocytic leukemia, uh, Waldenstrom macroglobulinemia, marginal zone lymphoma, and mantle cell lymphoma. Um, but there are a lot more uh, other uh, B-cell malignancies. So the, the way that I try to remember them and compartmentalize them in my head is two ways. First is trying to identify what is the underlying biology, what is the, the cell of origin. And the way that uh, we determine this is our pathologist will look at the cells under a microscope. And we get these cells either from a bone marrow biopsy, uh, peripheral blood, or a lymph node biopsy. They'll look at them under the cell, uh, under a microscope, and they'll tell us, uh, you know, Anthony, these are very early progenitor cells, they're immature cells. And so um, this is probably an acute leukemia. That disease state we're not going to talk about today. Or they'll say, Anthony, these are mature B cells. And there are so many subtypes of mature B cells. I rattled off four of them, but there are multiple, multiple others. The way that we differentiate them is we, we use something called flow cytometry. Essentially, we, we uh, shine laser beams at the cell to then tell us, well, what is being expressed on the outside of the cell? 
Um, there are different clusters of differentiation. So CDs, so CD20, CD19, CD22, CD23. There's multiple that our pathologists will look at to then subcategorize all of these, um, these different B-cell malignancies. Um, and sometimes it, it, it's challenging even with flow, so we have to do more sophisticated tests, molecular tests to help us differentiate. Um, so that's kind of the underlying biology and the cell of origin, how we differentiate. But the way that I do this clinically is, are my patients coming in with a slow-growing indolent lymphoma, or are they coming in with an aggressive lymphoma? So aggressive lymphomas could be diffuse large B-cell lymphoma or Burkitt lymphoma. Uh, those disease states we're not going to talk about. We're mainly going to talk about our mature B-cells uh, that are slower-growing or indolent, and that's CLL, Waldenstrom's, uh, mantle cell, and, and marginal zone lymphoma. This is going to be a great conversation, uh, Dr. Anthony. Thank you. So for reference, on April 1st, 2021, really not that long ago, Pharmaceutical Business Report came out about BTK inhibitors in that specific market. The report brought attention to the financial side and the development of additional BTK inhibitors studies and the attention this is bringing to physicians uh, specialty groups and organizations that really concentrate on these disease states to really give us an opportunity to be prepared for what is coming so that we can drill down into the effectiveness of uh, pharmacists within this disease state in these treatment care plans. I wanted to go back just a bit, Anthony, and can you review for us the oral treatment options specifically? Yeah, so back uh, back when I was in residency, none of the therapies that we're talking about today are BTK inhibitors were commercially available. We are studying them in clinical trials, um, but none of them have, were clinically available. And that was only, you know, eight to 10 years ago. Um, back then, we were using cytotoxic chemotherapy uh, with a monoclonal antibody. So uh, back then, it was a monoclonal antibody directed against CD20 called rituximab or rituxin. Um, and we would add rituxin to you know, we would cobble together a, a regimen. Um, it would be, you know, for CLL, something like FCR, fludarabine, cyclophosphamide, and rituxin, or it could have been BR with bendamustine. Um, so we had a variety of different chemotherapies back then. Um, and now we're trying to not use those therapies at all anymore. Um, and, and one of the reasons is the, the age, the median age of these diseases is, you know, somewhere between 60 for some of them, all the way up to 70, 72 years of age. And so we, we're really trying not to use these cytotoxic chemotherapies because they have tremendous amount of myelosuppression. They have infection risk, mucositis. Um, patients are having to come in frequently for laboratory monitoring, um, they have uh, frequent infusions. Um, and so the quality of life of patients on some of these older IV therapies are, are not great. So there's definitely been a shift, uh, especially in CLL. You could get away uh, in CLL with not using any chemotherapy uh, in a patient's treatment. Um, for the, their, whether it's first line or second line or third line. Um, and we're starting to move towards that with our other disease states uh, that we'll talk about today. Um, you know, one of the other things that we used to do 
um, back, you know, 10 years ago when I was in residency, we would, for some of these malignancies, do an allogeneic stem cell transplant. And, and, and it really doesn't get any more intense than that. And because of our BTK inhibitors, uh, we're able to spare many of patients, if not all in some disease states, uh, having to go an allogeneic stem cell transplant. So definitely are seeing a, a transformation uh, in these uh, disease states. These BTK inhibitors in the treatments, this is so important. BTK inhibitors are, be as specific as possible. I really want to dig into this. And we might even pick each of them to come back later to a future discussion and really dig into different stages of the treatment. But would you review the BTK inhibitors and, and the options and the ones that you've studied and understand? Sure. So I'll start with um, what the, the three BTK inhibitors that we have. First, we have abrutinib, and this one was the first to market. And so we call it a, a first generation BTK inhibitor. And that really paved the way for the, for the other BTK inhibitors. Um, the, the second generation BTK inhibitors that we have are acalabrutinib and xanabrutinib. Uh, and they were developed um, because abrutinib, despite being called a BTK inhibitor, it can actually inhibit many other kinases. Uh, and when it inhibits those other kinases can cause some off-target toxicities. Um, and so some of our patients don't always tolerate our BTK inhibitors the way we would like them to, certainly much, much better than chemotherapy. And so the, our second generations were developed not necessarily to improve efficacy, but to improve the tolerability. So uh, these second generations were developed to have less off-target effects and try to be more specific uh, to the BTK. Um, and, and how do they work? Well, you know, it's, it's a very complex mechanism of action and uh, it, it's challenging to describe without a picture, but uh, let me try to give you sort of an analogy. And, you know, right now it's springtime and, and a lot of people are doing some gardening. Um, so I want you to imagine, uh, your B cell malignancy being a seed. Well, if you have a seed and you put it on your counter or you keep it in the package, what's gonna to happen to the seed? Absolutely nothing, right? Um, that seed needs some stimulation. So you put that seed into the ground, you put it into soil. The soil for the B cell malignancy is the microenvironment. So you put it in soil, all of a sudden the fertilizer, the nutrients, the water now going to stimulate uh, this, this seed or the B cell uh, malignancy. Uh, it's in, in a B cell malignancy, there's a lot of cytokines and chemokines, which are like your fertilizer to the seed. And it's going to signal through something called the B cell receptor. And so BCR gets signaled, and then it just tells the cell, you know what, divide uncontrollably, proliferate uncontrollably, and just become malignant. Uh, and so we need to shut that down. And so B, uh, the B cell receptor will then signal another kinase called Bruton's tyrosine kinase. So if we can shut off BTK, we can effectively shut off uh, the signaling through BCR and therefore shut down uh, the malignancy from uh, be, being more and more aberrant. Uh, the other thing that's happening in the microenvironment, so the, the soil also protects the cell, right? It's, it's protecting it um, from say birds, right? So birds can come in and start uh, eating up your seeds. Well, uh, the, the B cell malignancy is also protected by the microenvironment because it evades immune surveillance. So instead of the birds, it's T cells that are trying to find uh, these aberrant uh, B cells and trying to kill them. 
So what ends up happening, because there's no longer any stimulation through the B-cell receptor, the malignant B-cell is like, well, I don't like this microenvironment anymore. I need to get out of here. So it actually will leave the microenvironment and then go into the peripheral blood and then just go out and die uh, over time. And, and this is an important uh, part of the mechanism of action because initially when we're studying a brutinib, we're like, oh my God, these patients' lymphocytes are increasing and increasing. Our patients are progressing. But what was actually happening is the B cells were leaving the microenvironment because it didn't like being in there. There was nothing to stimulate it anymore. Left the microenvironment and just went into the peripheral blood to die. Uh, and this is very different than the way that chemotherapy works. Chemotherapy usually just causes lysis uh, immediately. So we ended up having to change how we uh, how we. Uh, uh, monitor our patients and also uh, change our criteria for response because it's now okay to have what we call a lymphocytosis. Anthony, we talked about some of the agents. And for those listening, don't worry, we will have a lot of show notes that you can reference. So if you're driving or jogging, uh, just wait until you get to a place that you can look. So Anthony, how do you identify and differentiate those agents? Yeah, so for, for right now, um, abrutinib has been studied uh, a lot more often than our other BTK inhibitors in a variety of different settings, first line settings of different disease states, second line settings. And so um, the, the first way to differentiate is, well, what does the clinical data suggest? And because brutinib has been studied more, uh, it usually gets precedent uh, for many of these disease states first. Um, but in disease states that... Uh, have equal data, we'll then differentiate them based off of the safety. Um, and so, uh, for example, for, for mantle cell lymphoma, we currently have three phase two. So the data from an efficacy perspective are equal between abrutinib, acalabrutinib, and xanabrutinib. So the next thing from efficacy we're going to look at is then the safety. And we're starting to see more and more glimmers that the second generations uh, may be better tolerated. So that's, that's one of the ways. Um, you know, other ways that will differentiate is just from, you know, basic uh, pharmacological properties like the half-life. Well, how often do you have to give a brutinib? Uh, brutinib is only once a day, whereas a calibrutinib is, is twice a day. Um, Xanabrutinib has some flexibility. You can give it once or twice a day. Um, other ways to differentiate could be based off of uh, uh, drug interactions. They all have SIP drug interactions, whether it's by inhibitors or inducers. But one unique thing about acalabrutinib is that we should not give acalabrutinib with a proton pump inhibitor because it can reduce the, the uh, concentrations by about 50%. Uh, so most of the time I'm trying to get my patient off of the proton pump inhibitor, or if they absolutely need one, uh, I try to avoid uh, that therapy. Um, and then, you know, the other way that we differentiate these drugs are, you know, broadly by what kinases they're inhibiting. So again, I, I talked about how brutinib can inhibit not just BTK, but other kinases. And again, the second generations are going to be more selective. And so uh, it really comes down to ultimately the safety profiles is how uh, I'm differentiating. So I guess to summarize first is where have they been studied? Um, and if they've been studying a certain setting, uh, they've likely gained FDA approval for that setting. Uh, and, and then um, probably also are recommended by the NCCN guidelines. 
Um, and so if it's FDA approved and NCCN guidelines, that's one way to differentiate. And then the second way is uh, based off of their safety profiles. Thanks for that explanation. I'm wondering what's coming of these agents. What do you see happening on the horizon as we dig down uh, deeper into these disease states and how these medications play their role? Yeah, there's definitely going to be new indications for all three of them. Uh, right now, abrutinib is FDA approved and used um, in, in all of our treatment pathways for all the malignancies that I talked about, CLL, Waldenstrom's, uh, marginal zone, lymphoma, and mantle cell. Um, Acalabrutinib and xanadrutinib are going to start catching up. They're, they are actively being studied in all of those malignancies. Uh, right now, acalabrutinib and xanadrutinib uh, are FDA approved for second line um, mantle cell lymphoma. And I, I anticipate that all three agents will start to try to move into the front line. So they're going to gain uh, new indications. Uh, for, for CLL, uh, I anticipate that Xanabrutinib will likely try to move into the, the frontline space and the, the second-line setting um, based off of newer data. Um, I anticipate that Xanabrutinib will also seek uh, approval eventually for um, marginal zone lymphoma. Um, and so I, I, I think... Um, you know, abrutinib has, again, paved the way, and, and acalabrutinib and xanabrutinib are, are just going to continue to seek um, the market share that abrutinib has in, in where, where it's, where it's uh, FDA approved. Um, so that's, that's one thing that I think the future is to hold. The, the second thing in the future I think is going to happen is we're going to start combining these drugs. So instead of using them as a single agent, we're going to combine them with other uh, other. Uh, therapies. Uh, one therapy in particular is our BCL2 inhibitor, venetoclax. Um, and so there are ongoing trials with abrutinib with venetoclax, xanabrutinib with venetoclax, acalabrutinib with venetoclax. And in some of these trials, we're also combining them with an anti-CD20 monoclonal antibody, whether it's rituximab uh, or abinutuzumab. And the goal here is to hopefully induce a much deeper remission and the reason why we want a deeper remission is because we want to hopefully stop some of these therapies and give patients a treatment holiday. Right now, with all three of our BTK, BTK inhibitors, we um, give them orally, you know, daily or twice daily, indefinitely. So they're on these therapies for, you know, it, it could be years, if not decades, uh, until they progress or until they're they're intolerant. And for many of these disease states. Um, patients can now live with their disease for years, uh, if not decades. So the goal is to try to get them off of these therapies so that they can have a treatment break. So um, having multiple agents could induce a, a deeper remission. The other point to, to be made about um, combination therapies is that um, we could help prevent resistance as well. So you're mentioning generations of these treatments. The first generation was in the cardiovascular and hypertension. And we have data, we've tracked the outcomes of many patients on the medications. Dr. Anthony, would you classify generation one and generation two for us? Sure. So the first generation would be abrutinib. And then our second generation would be acalabrutinib and xanabrutinib. So I think about the management of the disease state, the communications between the pharmacist and the patient. Dr. Anthony, what do you suggest that they discuss? Yeah, so the first thing that we're going to discuss with the patient is the diagnosis. Um, 
What is your diagnosis? How did we come up with this diagnosis? And what does this diagnosis mean to you? Um, in some cases, the diagnosis um, might not require any treatment. There are some patients that come to us and they're completely asymptomatic from the disease. Um, it is very hard to make an asymptomatic patient feel any better and, and giving them treatment is not gonna help them feel any better. Um, so we discuss with them whether or not their disease requires, um, requires treatment. You know, if it's a patient that is, is very symptomatic, they're having a lot of B symptoms and B symptoms are drenching night sweats, a fever, extensive weight loss. That's a patient that we're going to, you know, talk about the pros and cons of, of the therapies uh, versus their symptoms from their disease. Some patients can present with uh, bulky lymph nodes, bulky lymphadenopathy, um, some of which can cause laboratory abnormalities. So we're letting the patient know whether or not first that we think that they need treatment versus uh, if they don't need treatment. The next thing that we're talking about is if they do need treatment, well, what are all your options? Uh, certainly the BTK inhibitors are, are part of the options, but there are other options as well that we put on the table for the patients. And we talk about the pros and cons of each of them. Um, with this uh, pro and con discussion, we're also looking at the patient's comorbidities. We're looking at concomitant medications. Uh, there are uh, quite a bit of logistical differences uh, between various treatment options. Do you need to come into our infusion center? Do you need uh, a lot of laboratory monitoring for TLS? And so all those things are put on the table for, for, for our patients. We talk about the safety uh, of these drugs. We talk about the, the efficacy. Um, and what we're really trying to do with all of this education is, is we're trying to empower our patient uh, so that they feel like they are part of the treatment decision. Um, after we um, come up with a treatment strategy for the patient, we then talk to them about when they should come back to us and follow up. And when they're on BTK inhibitors, usually we're following their labs on a weekly basis, at least initially, just to make sure that um, you know, no, no laboratory abnormalities occur um, and we can adjust if, if they do. Um, after the, a, a couple of weeks of monitoring, we then go to every couple of weeks and then it, it pushes out to every three to six months uh, that we need to see them. So we educate them all on all of this. We give them educational uh, handouts. Um, and we also discuss with them their goals of their therapy. You know, I didn't mention this yet, but um, unfortunately these mature B-cell, indolent B-cell uh, leukemias, lymphomas are not curable. And so our goal is not going to be to cure these patients. It's going to be to control their, their, their symptoms, to control their disease, to get them into, you know, as deep of remission as possible um, so that they can live uh, with the disease more like it's a, a chronic disease um, that's, you know, just there, but not causing them problems. Um, and so with that, you know, there, there's a, a big point about our, our oral therapies is that, um, non-adherence can be an issue. Um, and we really try to emphasize them on, on knowing that, okay, just because you're feeling better six months from now does not mean that your disease is gone and that you're cured. You still need to take your medication uh, every single day. Um, there are some patients that unfortunately have some toxicities where they, they need to stop their therapy. Um, there's, there's some data that say that 20% of patients ha have to stop therapy uh, because of intolerance. Um, and that's uh, my role as a pharmacist, uh, part of the treatment team is to, to educate patients 
that when they're having some toxicities to call us, uh, we're certainly going to monitor them and, and talk to them uh, and follow up with them to make sure that they're uh, tolerating things. But we also need to empower them to call us when they're having problems. Uh, we have so many tricks up our sleeves as pharmacists uh, to help manage uh, their, their issues with tolerability. You know, again, I, I said there's data in the literature that suggests about 20% of patients will stop abrutinib due to intolerance. In, in my practice, it's less than 10%. And the reason being is because we're educating patients, we're having them call us as soon as an adverse effect happens and we medically manage them uh, really well. And we work with a, a great team of you know, pharmacists, physicians, uh, nurses, PAs. It's really a nice multidisciplinary approach. So when you mention toxicities, and I'm thinking specifically around cardiovascular treatment and disease, let's talk about the adverse effects. Let's talk about what's commonly out there that's been documented that pharmacists should really understand. Yeah, so from a cardiac standpoint, I would say there are three major things that I'm looking for. Uh, the first is hypertension. The second is atrial fibrillation. And the third is bleeding. And, and what's really uh, interesting from a historical perspective is we did not really expect some of these toxicities to happen. Um, and, and I, I'll be honest, I was in complete denial about the atrial fibrillation uh, for a while. Um, and, and the reason why I say that is because you have to think about the population. Most of these patients are in their later 60s and their 70s. The population in general in the United States has a risk of developing atrial fibrillation. And at the time, we never had comparative trials to say that, you know, a brutinib versus this other therapy uh, was going to increase your AFib. So I, again, I was in denial. I was like, well, no, maybe it's just an aging population that's just getting AFib and we're keeping them alive much longer. Um, and, and maybe it's not the drugs. But unfortunately, I was wrong. Um, as we had more and more comparative data, we did show that, um, uh, with abrutinib and our BTK inhibitors, uh, there is a higher incidence of atrial fibrillation. Uh, the same is somewhat true with hypertension. Initially, we weren't expecting hypertension to occur. Um, and, you know, first couple patients that we're, we're treating, um, you know, do fine. And then the next couple, uh, they come into our clinic and their blood pressure is 160 over 110. And we don't think anything of it because we just think, oh, you know, this is you know, the U.S., many patients have hypertension. And then the next couple patients come in and more hypertension. Um, and so, again, we didn't quite know until we started having comparative data that showed that, yes, hypertension is something that occurs. Um, and for many patients, it, it can occur within the first six months. And, and same with atrial fibrillation. Um, but just because it didn't happen in the first six months doesn't mean that it's not going to happen. Uh, we needed to follow these patients for several years um, before we truly knew the incidence uh, of both hypertension and atrial fibrillation. Uh, the bleeding, we, we knew early on in clinical trials that bleeding was going to be an issue. Um, and, and one of the reasons that we knew this was because when we had patients that were on warfarin, uh, there were some pretty major bleeds in the early clinical trial, so we had to mandate the protocols uh, to not allow warfarin uh, going forward. Um, and so uh, we'll talk a little bit more of the mechanisms and whatnot, but um, those are the three major adverse effects from a cardiac perspective, the bleeding, hypertension, and atrial fibrillation. Are all the agents similar, Dr. Anthony? Yeah, the, the short answer to that is, is no. Um, and 
I'm assuming you probably want a nice long answer so that we can educate the audience, right? <laughs> uh, so the, the long answer is it's very complicated. And um, this was also something, and I have to, be, I have to admit, I, I was in denial for a while as well about uh, the first generations versus the second generations. I honestly thought, you know, these second generations, you know, they're just me too drugs trying to get market share. Um, and, you know, initially, the, the claim was pharmacologically, these drugs were very different, that uh, um, abrutinib inhibits various different kinases. It, it'll inhibit not only BTK, but TEK, SFK, CERC, EGFR, BMX, uh, ERGB2, and, and inhibiting all of these kinases uh, can actually cause some of these cardiac toxicities. So pharmacologically, there was a case uh, for the second generations that because they inhibit those kinases less, that there would be less cardiac effects. But pharmacologically is not enough. I think we, you know, we need clinical evidence to prove that. And so initially, um, we did not have any comparative data. And so uh, when you cross trial compared, which you should never do, the audience listening here, you're always going to be wrong when you try to cross trial compare. But at the time, that's all we had. So we would cross trial compare and we'd see, okay, abrutinib's causing AFib at a rate of you know, 5 to 15% uh, AFib in the clinical trials. And then you look at acalabrutinib and xanabrutinib and you're like, oh, it's, it's only like 2 to 3% or 4%. Um, so we're starting to see some hints there. But again, when you're cross trial comparing, it's, it's always different. Difficult to, to say definitively that there was a difference um, because inclusion criteria can be different. The patients that are studied, their comorbidities could be different. Um, so, so, you know, those were two, two things that were starting to hint that there were differences, the pharmacological and then cross-trial comparing. And then now, um, you know, if you would ask me this question six months ago, I would have said, uh, you know, I, I actually don't know whether there is a true difference, but now we actually have two randomized controlled trials. Uh, one is the Aspen trial and the other is the Elevate RR trial. The Aspen trial was a trial in Waldenstrom macroglobulinemia comparing a brutinib with uh, Xanabrutinib. And we didn't see any differences in efficacy, but what we did see when we compared them in a randomized fashion, that the atrial fibrillation, uh, some of the bleeding, the hypertension seemed to be much lower with Xanabrutinib, the second generation compared to Abrutinib. And we now have another clinical trial that has not been published. We've, we only have a press release. Uh, so the, the the details are pretty limited right now, but what we do know from the press release is that the Elevate RR comparing acalabrutinib to abrutinib in relapsed refractory CLL, that there is a significant reduction in atrial fibrillation. I don't know the details about the bleeding, the hypertension right now. So, you know, long story short, it does seem like the second generations truly are living up to, you know, what they were developed for, and that was to reduce the off-target effects. I'm sure many of our listeners share in the excitement that I do, knowing that the role of the pharmacist continues to expand. And in this case, um, pharmacists can become disease state experts in administering and moving forward in treatments that would include um, this category of what you've been talking about with us today, Dr. Anthony. One of the factors is the expense of the treatment. We know that BTK inhibitors over a long period of time, it's pretty expensive. Beyond toxicity and other side effects of these medications, but how do you put the patient in the best case for success? How do you assess which patients should be put on 
these medications? There are a couple of different tools that you can use. One thing that I think is very, very easy to, to help with a patient's risk is, is their age. Uh, so age is by far the strongest predictor of needing to discontinue a BTK inhibitor due to toxicity. Uh, so age is, is one uh, that I'll, I'll look at. And so, um, you know, for this reason, I think um, the acalabrutinib and xanabrutinib first started getting studied in older adults uh, with B-cell malignancies, hoping to really show that, that older patients can tolerate the, the second-generation uh, BTK inhibitors. So age is probably one of the strongest risk factors. As a pharmacist, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm taking a look at your medications, and there are some red flags that I look for. If I have a patient that is on a dual antiplatelet agent, so that's like clopidogrel with aspirin, or they're on an anticoagulant um, like uh, a, a pixaban or rivaroxaban with aspirin, um, or a patient that has valvular disease and needs to be on warfarin. Those are all medication histories that I'm looking at, or I, I, those are big red flags to me um, because of the bleed risk. It, it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to completely avoid my BTK inhibitor. Um, I might gravitate towards the second generations, but I am sitting down with my patient and discussing the risk versus benefit. Uh, in many cases, patients don't have good alternative treatments um, beyond their BTK inhibitor. So again, it's it's a risk versus benefit discussion with patients. It's um, uh, you know, ultimately the, the patient's decision. Um, but most of the time when we're making these decisions, uh, the benefits of the BTK inhibitors uh, do outweigh uh, some of these risks. If I can get them off of any of these uh, therapies, I certainly do. Um, uh, you know, there, there are scoring tools out there to, to help with risk, uh, one of which the audience could be uh, familiar with is the HAS-BLED, uh, which is often used to assess patients' risk uh, of bleeding when they're trying to prescribe an anticoagulant for atrial fibrillation. So the HAS-BLED um, you know, looks at a couple of different parameters to tell you what your patient's risk of bleeding is. It's not the greatest tool, to be honest. Um, it's not even a great tool, a, a very predictive tool in the general population. Um, and it certainly has not been validated in patients that are receiving BTK inhibitors. But we don't really have any alternatives uh, to judge our patient's bleed risk. So, you know, I'll, I'll often use it in conjunction with my uh, clinical judgment. So that's, that's kind of how I'm assessing their, the risk for bleed. Uh, there are ways to assess the patient's risk for atrial fibrillation. There have been a number of really nice papers by uh, Dr. Shanafelt, and he created a, a Shanafelt score. Um, and there, there are a couple of factors that will go in this that tell you the risk of a patient developing atrial fibrillation. It's patients that are older in age, uh, male sex, having valvular disease already, and, and, and having hypertension. The more of points that you get on this scale, the more uh, likelihood of developing atrial fibrillation. You know, patients that are four plus or, or five can have an incidence of up to 17% incidence of, of developing atrial fibrillation. So those patients, I will also obviously have a discussion with them, but those are patients that are often uh, gravitating towards a second generation BTK inhibitors. Um, you know, another point that, that should be made, just because a patient's at high risk for atrial fibrillation, or even in a patient that already has atrial fibrillation, it is not a contraindication to using a BTK inhibitor. 
oftentimes the BTK inhibitor's efficacy is going to far outweigh uh, the risk of developing atrial fibrillation. However, if you have a patient where you absolutely cannot, after all your, you know, your, your tries and of medical management of trying to control their atrial fibrillation, um, that's a patient that we tend not to prescribe uh, or continue their, their BTK inhibitor. Um, and, you know, from a, from a hypertension perspective, um, there's not really um, that many scoring tools uh, that I'm aware of to, to determine their risk of, of hypertension. Um, but similar to atrial fibrillation, just because a patient has hypertension does not mean that uh, you cannot use a BTK inhibitor. Uh, again, we have many great antihypertensives out there, and I think it's my job and our pharmacist's job to help uh, manage and control patients' uh, hypertension. And actually, there's data to show that um, if you don't control your patient's hypertension, uh, to no surprise, patients are more likely to have cardiovascular events, whether it's a myocardial infarction or a stroke. Um, whereas, um, thankfully, if you can manage their, their hypertension, it's going to completely abrogate the risk of developing a cardiovascular uh, adverse event. Yes. Bleeding risks skin issues, hypertension, as you mentioned, and headaches. Headaches can be a big one. So we know side effects are possible. How are we managing these adverse reactions with patients that are on these BTK inhibitors? And you mentioned headache. That's actually a really good teaching point. I'm glad you mentioned that because uh, acalabrutinib is notorious for causing a headache. And usually uh, for most patients, it's self-limiting and, you know, over a month or so, it just goes away. Uh, for those patients, uh, we do have to prescribe uh, sometimes some pain medications. I like to use acetaminophen, uh, you, you know, um, despite acalabrutinib being a second generation and having a lower incidence of bleed, I do try to avoid uh, NSAIDs or anything that's going to increase their bleed risk. Um, so I'm glad you, you brought up the, the headache. And Anthony, and I was, I'm, a co I'm a coffee drinker. So this is bad <laughs> for me because of the caffeine situation. <laughs> so that's why I, <laughs> well, you know, that's actually a really good point as well. So in, in addition to acetaminophen, we can also prescribe coffee or just, you know, ask our patients to, to drink some coffee. Um, to help with the calibrutinib uh, headache. Um, and, and as far as, you know, to your question of, well, how, how do we manage the drugs themselves um, if, if a patient has a side effect? Generally, I continue the medications if it's low grade, grade one or two, unless it's persistent and it's uh, affecting their quality of life. That's when I'll start thinking about uh, holding or doing dose modifications. But in general, I would say a patient that has uh, grade three or four toxicities, and we use the CTCAE grading criteria, if a patient has a grade three or four toxicity, um, we will hold their BTK inhibitor until it comes down to a grade one. And at that point, I generally will just restart them back at the same exact dose. However, if that adverse effect happens again at a grade three or four. Again, I'll hold it till it's a grade one, but then I'm going to start doing some dose reductions. So that's kind of how I, I manage uh, the drugs themselves is essentially, you know, either holding therapy, uh, waiting for things to resolve, and then plus or minus dose reductions. Now, some people will um, switch almost immediately. Okay. If a patient has a grade four, three, four reaction, they'll 
and, and it was with a brute nib, they will just switch immediately to a second generation. Um, and, and, you know, that's, that's uh, an, another style of practice. And I think that's perfectly reasonable. I generally don't take that approach. I really like to, to try my best at medically managing the patient. Uh, and I try not to just give up on a therapy just because of a, a grade three or four adverse effect occurred. Um, I try to do these strategies of dose reductions and or medical management before just completely uh, moving on to another therapy. So is there things that pharmacists can do to minimize bleeding risks with uh, patient treatment? I'm always thinking of ways that patients can help improve a treatment for the specific patient. What are your thoughts? Patient education is absolutely key. I think we need to have uh, broad discussions, letting our patients know uh, that they need to communicate with us, um, you know, communicate with us uh, whether they're having side effects, whether they start new drugs. Um, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier that there are drug interactions um, that could increase or decrease the patient's BTK inhibitor um, concentrations, which could then lead to toxicities. Um, I like to educate patients on some of the supportive care medications that they can take on their own. I like to educate them on when to call our clinic or in basket message us, or uh, we have a lot of, uh, you know, in our next uh, podcast, we're going to talk about some digital technologies. There's a lot of ways that we can talk back and forth with our patients. Um, and we certainly have touch points uh, when we're going to talk with patients, but we, but in the interval, if a patient's having any issues when they're starting new medications, uh, we want them to talk back and forth with us um, just in case uh, a drug does interact. And there's quite a bit of studies out there that if patients are on medication, medications that interact, they're more likely to develop hypertension. They're more likely to develop atrial fibrillation or, or bleeding. You know, other things as pharmacists, we always think about pharmacological uh, interventions, but there's a lot of non-pharmacological interventions that we can educate patients on as well. So when you think about atrial fibrillation and hypertension, um, we can reduce this by um, things like uh, helping with their diet choices, uh, exercise, smoking cessation, um, doing things like yoga to help with stress, uh, reducing alcohol, all these things are non-pharmacological prescriptions that uh, can help us with reducing atrial fibrillation and hypertension. Um, as far as uh, atrial fibrillation, the way that uh, we will uh, manage this and, and help patients is um, just like we would with the general population uh, that develops atrial fibrillation. So there are generally two ways that we can approach this. You either use rate control where you're using a beta blocker to slow down the heart rate so that they don't go into a, a rapid ventricular rate and, and cause symptoms, or there's um, a, a rhythm control where you try to put their, their heart back into a normal sinus rhythm. So I typically will use rate control unless the patient's uh, symptomatic, um, and then we'll start doing rhythm control. One, one caveat to all this is that uh, we have to be cognizant about drug interactions, again, especially with our antiarrhythmics. Um, we don't want to increase our BTK inhibitor concentrations leading to, you know, other toxicities. Um, you know, in addition to 
to, to AFib besides just rate controlling or rhythm controlling, we have to assess our patient's risk for stroke. And again, none of this is any different than the general population. Uh, we are going to cal calculate their CHADS-VAS score. And if a patient has a score of two or greater, uh, we need to sit them down and, and talk about the risk versus benefit of starting anticoagulation. Um, and so anticoagulation typically, um, because we should not use warfarin, uh, generally will be with one of our newer agents like apixaban or rivaroxaban or whichever is, you know, the audience's favorite. Um, and I talked about, you know, the bleed risk as well with atrial fibrillation, trying to minimize that. Um, you know, the other thing with, with bleeding is simple things like uh, patients taking fish oils or vitamin E, and I mentioned NSAIDs, uh, those are things that patients often won't even think of um, because they, they sound benign for the most part, but they can actually increase the patient's bleed risk. Um, other things that we educate patients on to reduce their, their bleed risk is that if they have an upcoming appointment for a surgery, uh, to let us know because we need to have them hold their, their BTK inhibitor. We generally will say that patients that are going to have a minor procedure that we want them to hold their BTK inhibitor three days before and after the procedure. If it's going to be major, we want them to hold it for seven days uh, before and after. And then the last cardiovascular toxicity we talked about is hypertension. And it's nice and simple. Follow exactly what you follow for the, the general population. So however you were taught to treat hypertension, keep doing that. Whatever guideline you're following, whether it's JNC7, whether it's the AHEA or whatever JNC number we're at right now, at least when I was in residency, it was seven. I'm clearly out of date. Um, but if it's the AHA guidelines, um, use those because we have data that show that there is no specific class of drugs that work best for BTK inhibitors. So just follow uh, standard practice. There are some patients, I would say probably around 15 to 20% of patients or so that are going to require two antihypertensives. And that is okay. Um, as long as you can control patients' hypertension, they can continue their BTK inhibitor. That's kind of how I um, uh, manage patients and how I try my best to improve outcomes and how I try to prevent, you know, what the literature suggests of a 20% uh, discontinuation rate. And that's how I bring it down to, again, like I said, probably less than 10%. Anthony, I want to thank you. This has been a fascinating conversation. And in wrapping up, for the listeners, what's the single takeaway from this podcast episode you'd like them to think about? And what can we expect in follow up? So I want to share, you know, my mind has, has absolutely been blown about BT Canada's and, and again, providing that context of where we came from, cytotoxic chemotherapy, some requiring allogeneic stem cell transplant, shifting away from all of that, the traditional chemotherapy um, has been absolutely remarkable to me. Um, and, and, and it's been remarkable because of how efficacious our BTK inhibitors are in the, the management of B-cell malignancies. And they, when you compare and contrast, you know, I know we talked about uh, some side effects that these BTK inhibitors can cause, but when you compare that to uh, a transplant or cytotoxic chemotherapy, the toler tolerability profile is definitely much more advantageous with these BTK inhibitors. Um, and the other takeaway point is that the safety can be dramatically improved and enhanced uh, when we have pharmacists that are involved in the management of these patients. Great insights today, Dr. Anthony. We very much appreciate you. 
Thank you very much. I, I had a really great time discussing all this and thanks for picking my brain with all your great questions. Thanks for tuning in to the PTCE Pharmacy Connect podcast. Your feedback is important to us. Please share with us your thoughts on this episode and other topics you'd like to learn about. Go to pharmacytimes.org forward slash contact and send us a message. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.